On this episode of Press Play OK, we talk with someone who has his hands in every aspect of the Tulsa music scene. Natty Gray is a musician, a solo noise act, a promoter of shows and festivals, and he's the co-founder of the record label Cult Love Sound Tapes. He also recently started working with the label Peyote Tapes, and if that wasn't enough, had his hands all over the new virtual festival in Tulsa called Drone Fest. So today on Press Play OK, join us as we talk to jack-of-all-trades Natty Gray. Support for this podcast comes from Musicians Haven, a nonprofit organization focused on providing opportunities for musical enjoyment. Based out of Claremore, Musicians Haven provides events like jam nights, vinyl nights, and intimate concerts. More information on Musicians Haven at musichaven.org or at facebook.com slash musicianshaveninc. In the studio today, we have Natty Gray. Natty, thanks so much for hanging out with us on Press Play OK. It was great to be here. Thank you. I don't know if I've ever known someone who's been into as many different styles of music as you. Uh, you're everything from like harsh noise to hip hop to metalcore and indie rock. I've seen you at like all of these different shows and you're always just having a really good time. How did you end up getting into it's not just music, but so many different styles of music? <laughs> well, that's a really flattering introduction. First off, that's really sweet. I appreciate it. Um, I definitely like I think I would blame my mom for almost all of it because she was kind of my first introduction and I guess like avenue into like the local music uh, community and I guess even like um, in some ways like DIY music though not how a lot of people think about it with like you know kind of alternative and punky connotation to that word because when I was around like 12 I'd say late middle school my mom started booking like local music and events around Tulsa originally for like um, just small parties and events she would do with her friends and uh, she would just book local acts or semi-regional acts for it. But eventually she worked herself up to like doing um, her own like concert series at All Souls Unitarian Church called the All Souls Acoustic Coffee House, where she booked like kind of bigger, like folky Americana, bluegrassy acts. And um, I would, of course, get roped into those, whether I was attending or working the merch booth or helping set up sound stuff, usually working stuff for her. So it was kind of through her that I got introduced to like local music. And I was able to find like kind of my own footing in that um, with music that I liked. And I definitely felt a little more emboldened to like approach any kind of show and any kind of genre because I had been brought into it at a pretty young age. Your mom has has booked a lot of shows and she she still does stuff with music. Um, She's working with the Live from Kane series now. And and so she's always from from my time when I first started working here at RC Radio, she's always been hitting me up saying, hey, I'm doing this event, hey, I'm doing this event. How much has all of that throughout your life kind of prepared you for everything that you do in Tulsa music? It's been huge. I think I tell like most people this, but I think if like first person that comes to mind that's been like the biggest influence in my life creatively and like for the stuff that I'm really passionate about, well, sh- shoot, a lot of the stuff that I'm interested in doing even in other passions and other areas of my life have been influenced by her like, I'm really into Japanese, for example, and that's what I studied in college. And that was all because of um, avenues that she opened for me and influences that she had on me when I was younger. But she was huge for me and all that. I mean, I've been volunteering for local events since I was, I think, probably like 12 years old. And um, I've worked all sorts of stuff with her. So she's kept me around even probably at times where I didn't really want to go out and (laughs) go spend my Friday working a show for her, selling merch or whatever. I still ended up doing it. I think part of me knew that like, I wanted to do this on a more serious level. So even if at the time I would have rather been hanging out with friends, I still ended up at those events working with her. <laughs> still do, in fact, all the time. 
So we'll definitely get into some of the events that you've worked with and, and worked on and, and created and all that stuff. But before we do that, let's talk a little bit about the music that you make yourself. Um, and let's start off with the Natty Gray experience, you know, the, <laughs> the, the harsh noise experience that whenever you see Natty Gray on a bill, it's usually you going out and doing uh, a noise set. So sure. let's talk a little bit about noise music first off. So I guess first off, is it music? Um, that is like, oh man, that is such a great question. Um, I think like, uh, I think like a lot of like older noise heads and people that are a lot truer than me is what they say in the noise community would say that noise is noise. And I guess when I talk about noise and music in like a similar like context, I refer to them separately. But I've been admired doing an interview once where somebody asked me, well, is noise art? And I think a lot of, like tr again, truer noise heads would like to argue that noise is noise, art is art, noise is separate from art. But I think when it comes to that conversation, if you're like, I think noise can only truly be noise if you're doing it alone in your bedroom, only doing it live, not recording any of it, not relying on an audience for any of it, and not talking to anyone about it. Then I think noise is truly purely noise. I think if it's brought out of any context that is not that, then um, like you get into the conversation of well, anti-art is technically art. <laughs> for me, it's just kind of fun more than anything, and I'm really into sound and like textural things like that. So that's kind of my kick for it more than anything in the community. So I mean, I guess there's like really philosophical conversations on this kind of stuff at noise shows or <laughs> yeah when we're not drunk for sure <laughs> that's, that's the other thing is that we're all really at the end of the day i was talking to somebody about that with like um it's really just a bunch of like hardcore like gear music and like niche dorks that all just also happen to really like to party and like <laughs> geek out together but there is like a lot of philosophical approaches you can take to it and there's like a lot of literature you can read on it too about like Especially like I think of like a book called Japan Noise by David Novak I read when I was around 19 years old that makes like a cultural comparison between the feedback loop aspect of noise and cultural feedback loops within Japan and like assimilation within Japan of like other cultures, languages and styles and music and stuff and how they bring it in and kind of um, Japaneseify it for less of a better word. But yeah, cultural feedback loops versus actual literal noise feedback loops. Fascinating read though if anyone hasn't read that. <laughs> You said that it's kind of just for fun for you. You know, you're just out there enjoying it. So I'm, I'm just, I'm curious, and I would imagine most people listening don't get to talk to a lot of people who create noise. Is it just a fun thing for you? Is it actually some sort of, you know, message you're trying to express? Like, like a lot of, you know, like traditional songwriting. Hmm. What's, what's kind of the goal whenever you go up and and do a noise set? Yeah, you know, I, I say that. For me, it's a lot of it's for fun. And I guess that just for me, like I enjoy like the atmosphere of like extreme music events and I enjoy the people. And it's just a very, it's a very different kind of show than other shows. But I guess really for me, um, I've found when I was younger, I think like a late teen, um, I've never been a super talented musician, which I don't want to stereotype noise as being like the thing where the people who aren't super talented musicians <laughs> go to. But for no, that's me- that's punk, isn't yeah, it? <laughs> yeah, honestly, <laughs> right. <laughs> but for me, um, I've found that the clearest way for me to articulate myself and my emotions and how I think and feel was to do it sonically and not necessarily through words. I find, um, I don't want to sound over the top or pretentious or overly poetic, but like um, I find like words to be really confining sometimes. And like I have a hard time, I feel like 
articulating myself and how I'm thinking exactly or how I'm feeling. And it feels like maybe I just don't have a good enough vocabulary, honestly, to start reading a dictionary or something. But I found that like it was a lot easier for me to express how I really felt sonically rather than verbally or through like more conventional means of music. So I guess like if you watch me perform live or if you even listen to my recordings, I guess, um, you, that you're really kind of seeing me not just again sound cliche but like bare my soul I guess to some degree it's probably the clearest passageway into like seeing inside me I think is how I would articulate it so I guess for me there is like an emotional and like real kind of creative connection with it more than just I like to drink beer and <laughs> like play really loud music when you're getting ready for a set that you're going to perform uh, do you do you have songs that you prepare or is it Uh, Like, do you have a plan going in, like what you're going to do, what it's going to sound like? Is it like a repeating pattern from show to show? How does all that work? Um, For a lot of noise artists, they actually do do performances of like previous pieces and projects they've done before. And maybe like new interpretations of it, because with a lot of noise stuff, it's hard to perfectly emulate or replicate something you've done before all the time especially like with the way you run gear and do certain things, you just kind of don't always know what's going to happen. But in my case, I am always improvising, but I go off of a formula usually. A big part of my project and live performances is ritual, which I kind of think relates to me just being like an obsessive compulsive person. So it's like a lot of it is like real patterned, not necessarily all the time, but most of the time. And it starts off usually with uh, a sample of a video game that I really liked as a kid or something with that sort of connection with my childhood. And then into harsh noise, um, sometimes some vocals, kind of pseudo power electronics, and then usually closes out with um, the sample again and maybe some like feedback worship. But yeah, usually it's a I formula I have in my head that gets improvised and fleshed out in the in the, uh, in the actual like performance, yeah. Sure. Yeah, so it's kind of like a mix between you know what you're gonna do and it's also on the fly kind of thing. Totally, totally. That's cool. One thing that I find really interesting about pretty much everything you have your hands in, so whether it's booking shows or whether it's performing music or, or uh, working with your record labels, is that a lot of people, you see them in kind of like one section of music. There's the people who like heavy music and there's the people who like hip hop and there's people who like rhythmic music and, and that kind of stuff. But you go from putting out harsh noise music to putting out hip hop music to, you know, putting out like lo-fi dream pop music. Mm. When you create like an artist roster for Cult Love Sound Tapes. Yeah. Why, why do you go in so many different directions? What was the driving force behind that? Yeah, I, I feel that entirely. Um, I think that all comes back to like what when Christian and I started Cult Love in, um, I think that was the summer of 2015, because I think we just technically started our sixth year of being active. We really just wanted um, to try and make Cult Love be a creative flagship for Tulsa's creative community as a whole. Um, which of course, as time goes on, always ends up being more complicated than it sounds on paper. But um, so, but like, we really started out just because we wanted to be able to be participate in our own way within that community, and uh, really just at the time be a platform for our friends who were in bands and stuff like the Riot Waves, the Lukewarm, uh, Campbell and Gardner, um, a lot of like other local bands we knew at the time, and solo projects of our friends. We kind of wanted to just find a way to kind of like I guess collectively organize everyone and then expand that into being a, like I said, I guess a creative flagship for Tulsa and just kind of be a means and method, I think, of elevating and pushing the Tulsa creative world like ahead as a whole and on a broader scale and hopefully to a broader range of audiences. So I guess that's why we kind of reach for whoever and whatever. Plus we all kind of have broad tastes, I think, too, in general. 
bringing up um, when Cult Love first started out. And so you've been going for about six years now. Um, the the physical medium is kind of making a resurgence in music right yeah, now. You know, totally. uh, I think there was a, an article that came out recently. It said records outsold CDs for the first time in a long time. And, you know, it's records are starting to make a real comeback. And people, when they when they think about collecting physical mediums, a lot of times they, they think about records, but tapes are also a really uh, growing part of the underground DIY music community. Why tapes right now? Um, I guess like, well, there's a lot of reasons. I think like, I mean, the CD phenomenon is kind of funny because I think for me personally, I think CDs are the most obsolete media format right now because it doesn't have like really, it's like, it's not as practical as it used to be, but simultaneously it doesn't have that same like kind of collector's feel to it. Like buying a CD at Target is not nearly as cool as buying like a cassette or a record from a local label or band in my opinion. But for us is like cassette tapes are kind of like the embodiment of like DIY ethos and stuff like that. It's a cheap format that you can use, but it, you still get the same um, accessibility to like art and personalization that you would like a record or something for example but it's just much cheaper and I guess like for for us like that medium never really went away for like a lot of extreme music genres and stuff like that like stuff like punk and grindcore and harsh noise and I guess even like some other like more niche areas and labels um, so that kind of just felt like the natural the natural move for us to make. And at the time when we first started out, I was getting much, much more into collecting physical mediums of music than I had been previously. So it just kind of felt right. And I got a dual cassette deck and I was like, heck, here we go. We're just gonna start dubbing tapes. Yeah, I mean, I can I can back you up. Like mm -hmm. uh, I have like five or six boxes of CDs just sitting at home. <laughs> Mutual. I have tried to give them away and people <laughs> won't take them. So. Yeah, I saw you post about that the <laughs> other day and I was thinking, good luck, man. Yeah. Those aren't going anywhere. Well, at first I was like, maybe somebody will buy it. So I hit up record stores and <laughs> uh, no, Madness. no, I may have to pay to get rid of them. Yeah. It's kind of funny with CDs because like I think the only really um, – is that what I'm thinking of? Geographical? Yeah, geographical area where it's still practical is like East Asia for the most part. Like I know Japan still has like a huge market for CDs and it's kind of almost like inflated and subsidized by like the music industry there through like J-pop and stuff like that. And they'll do like, because you know, there's a lot of like fanatic fans of um fanatic fans, that probably doesn't make sense, <laughs> but a lot of hardcore fans of like J-pop and those like pop musics. So they'll like have these like kind of like Willy Wonka golden ticket style like meet and greet things, but it's like you can't buy the meet and greet. You just have to randomly find one in a CD. So you have you'll like you still have like these seven story like Tower Records and Shibuya, which is like seven stories of just CDs basically, which is kind of insane to think about on a Western term. But all these fans will go in there and each one, you know, will buy like 20, 30 copies of the same darn CD just to try and get one of those tickets for meet and greets. So that's really I think the only place. Yeah, that was kind of a weird tangent about CDs. <laughs> Well, I mean, it, it kind of shows you what you have to dangle in front of people to get them to buy CDs, but you yeah. guys routinely sell out of cassettes, so obviously mm -hmm. you're not having a hard time moving moving those units. Does that seem like it's kind of a nationwide trend? I'd say so as far as like the popularity of cassettes. I remember hearing like from friends of mine in the indie music scene that like people that they talked to that had toured the coast and stuff were basically like, you can't go to the East Coast without cassette tapes, can't go to the West Coast without cassette tapes. So maybe in some ways, which I hate to admit because I, I like to give the middle of the U.S. a lot more credit than the coast, <laughs> that the middle, of the, like, the middle of the U.S. is catching up with that some more as of recently. But I think, um, I think that popularity has been there for a while now in kind of more niche subcultures, and it's finally kind of just bubbling its way to the surface over time like most of these sorts of trends do. 
Speaking of cassettes, from before I ever actually really knew you, I always recognized you because you were the guy at the show holding a handheld cassette <laughs> recorder, and uh, yeah. you know, I you would you would like set it, you'd find the perfect place to set it up in front of the band where it's not going to get stepped on, and you hit record right whenever they start playing. What what's that all about? How did that get started? I am a brutal bootlegger, hardcore. I love bootleg stuff and like. Uh, man, where did I start doing that? I think I got that personal, the first personal cassette recorder I ever got, I think was when I was like 20 years old, maybe, maybe 19, um, from like a Salvation Army or something for like seven bucks. But I think that was also like another like weird, like subconscious offshoot to me just kind of being an obsessive compulsive person and liking to like kind of hoard and archive things. I've always really been into archiving. Like I'm still somebody, I don't use any like streaming websites. I still download all my MP3s and waves. I think I've got about, um, over 80,000 songs on my computer now. And that's not even like, I guess, including stuff on my external hard drive. So whenever I got that like PCR, I was like opened up to a whole new world of hoarding things and like archiving. So I just go buy like boxes of blank cassettes at um, whatever thrift store or whatever was around for like super cheap and just re-record over mostly some sort of like Bible related thing or books on tapes. And I would just do field recordings at first of just recording different atmospheres and conversations I was in. And I would like kind of cut the tapes up to where there's like weird glitches of like the original audio blended in there. And then I would get real weird with like decorating them and I would like spray paint them and like do weird art for them and stuff. So I started out with that, I think. And I think I made 40 or 50 of those before it dawned on me that like I could be taking this to concerts and like recording all the bands I go to. Cause I was going to, a, I went to concerts all the time before uh, the world started collapsing. But the, uh, so it just kind of was a natural progression for me to start doing something like that. And uh, now I think I have around 300 or 400 bootleg cassettes and field recordings from since when I was 20, I guess. Like, so like the last five years, I kind of fantasize about like digitizing all of it at some point and like putting it up on like maybe like, um, a sharing website of some kind or a almost named one, but then I was like, I'm not going to snitch on the radio about the sharing websites <laughs> and, or like put it somewhere where it's more accessible to people as some sort of broad archive. So some other weirdos out there like myself can find it and indulge in it, but it just takes forever, you know, cause it takes you, it's all in real time. So to digitize something, you have to like an hour and a half cassette takes an hour and a half to digitize. And then you have to mix it and compress it or whatever else you need to do to it. So it's a real tedious process. Do you, do you like talk to the bands about this or do you just, you just do it and assume they're going to be cool with it. <laughs> I guess it depends on like how interested I am in the bands. Cause a lot of times I'll tell them and I'll make them copies of it and send it off to them afterwards. And, um, or I've had bands asked to do releases of it and stuff like that in the past if the audio was good enough. But, um, I did say for the most part, it's just for my personal collection. So I don't really feel like too bad about it. Honestly, like, I don't know. I probably have a lot of like, I guess like unconventional and maybe mildly hot takes on like music and like musical rights and stuff like that. But um, the, for me, it's just more of like a personal archive thing. So I don't really have any qualms about it. And I don't usually ask bands for permission. I'm sure they see me though. And are just kind of like, what the heck is that dude doing over there? <laughs> so do you have like a favorite set? Do, oh my well, gosh. I guess before yeah. before we do that, do you actually go back and listen to these? Yeah. Or yeah. are they just kind of sitting there? I do. I do. It depends on, because sometimes there'll be like, like I'm someone who used to go to like, I would go to sometimes like five shows a week. So like I would have, I would have like all these cassettes piled up and sometimes those were the times I feel like some of them kind of slipped through the cracks and just ended up in the box of archive before like I actually really got to re-listen to it. But for a lot of them, I used to re-listen to them and definitely some of my favorite ones are all probably the ones I made while I was in Tokyo. 
living there because those were just such like unique niche experiences with like really really talented bands that i was really into um before i was there and at the time and after still so those are probably some of my favorites i like a lot of those like hardcore shows and honestly probably a lot of the screamo shows come through the cleanest on the pcr because the hardcore shows there's so much low end a lot of the time and it's so just oppressively loud that you just kind of hear or whatever on like the pcr and then i'm usually moshing too so it's just kind of like a lot of like the bag shaking around and rattling and the batteries get knocked out and it has to reset set but the screamer ones were usually my favorite because they're kind of like i think the audio was always a lot cleaner on them and there wasn't quite as much rattling around of the personal cassette recorder <laughs> Let's kind of move on and talk a little bit about Cult Love Sound Tapes, which is probably where a lot of people actually know you from. It's It seems like that is where you put the biggest amount of effort in, in your your music. Uh, I don't want to call it a career because I don't know if you're actually making money off of this stuff. <laughs> I make a very tiny <laughs> amount of money, but it's not through Cult Love. <laughs> uh, so... How did Cult Love get started, and and you know what was kind of the the driving idea when you first started it? Um, yeah, well, it definitely is where I put the majority of my time. I work on something. I work on something associated with Cult Love every single day. In fact, I'm like sometimes I'm like I wish I could kind of like escape this for a little while because it seems to kind of like tail me around, especially with kind of my personal role in the collective and label, which is more on the like kind of a managerial like networking side and like organizational. So it's kind of like I never really get to escape it because someone's always in my email or my social media inboxes or my text messages or somebody's calling me. But um, it started when I was 19, 19 or 20. Um, the summer of my after my freshman year of college was really when it truly tangibly started, but it had been kind of a brainchild of Christian and I's or George Christ for since um, probably mid my freshman year of college. Um, and again, it kind of came back to us. We were kind of on our creative kick at the time. We were working on projects together and doing like a lot of like VHS films and kind of like abstract experimental stuff and noise recordings and just kind of weird like abstract experimental creative projects. Um, and me and him were talking about just kind of like wanting like what was a way we can involve ourselves more in the community um, that wasn't necessarily like start a band or like start booking shows. Though it kind of ended up being that way in a lot of ways. <laughs> this is kind of the way things pan out. So me and him decided that we kind of felt like um, it would be like by running like a label and giving people more of like a platform for like underground and like niche music. Because we like at the time it's like Tulsa had like Horton Records, which was like a bit much bigger label comparatively to us that had like more of like a niche and specialty of like the new Tulsa sound. So we felt like there was kind of this um, unrepresented demographic in Tulsa that was more like DIY, um, ex like underground music, I say in quotes, but mm -hmm. that sort of thing. But it was like a little more niche than, um, and a little more out there than I think than the conventional like stereotypes about what kind of t music like Tulsa produces and puts out there. So um, you, you started off with this idea to sort of represent the the unknown parts of Tulsa, but since then you guys have had an you've grown to an international reach. You know, you yeah. have bands from all over the world and all over the country and all different uh, genres. Mm -hmm. How did you get to that point? Like, like what at what point did you say, hey, this might actually be a little bit bigger than than just you know my friends' bands in Tulsa? 
I think we kind of always like fantasized about it turning into something like that. Like naturally anyone would with any sort of creative project, I think like, especially it's something you do as a, at like a young age, you want to see it turn into like, you know, something bigger than you or your city or whatever. And we did always kind of have the intention, like I mentioned earlier, of it being like a creative flagship for Tulsa where like a lot of different communities that um, maybe necessarily didn't interact with each other as much could come and meet each other under and collectively push the entire greater creative community of Tulsa forward on a broader, more national and hopefully even like international scale. So I think like around the time I was moving to Tokyo, which is when we added our third member, uh, Lauren Drummond, because she took over for me while I was living in Japan and then stuck on uh, whenever I returned, was when I felt like it was maybe turning into something like bigger than what we had like interpret like I guess anticipated it being at first or what it started out as for sure um because we started working out we're like working with a lot of artists that like we had previously admired before we'd even started like a label and with bands that were kind of like I guess more like legitimate than like your like friends band or DIY band and then you start having artists from other places hit you up and it was kind of like oh I guess like we're on somebody's radar I guess <laughs> I don't know who's exactly but somebody's paying attention I mean, that was kind of when things started picking up. And then over the years, we've just been, we've always kind of tried to cast like a really wide net with like what we do. And it ended up being far beyond cassettes. Like we do like um, art curation, mural installments, tours, concerts, events, bootlegs, recording, noise, videography, uh, basically anything analog, bootlegs, if I didn't already mention that, merchandise, streetwear, um, all sorts of stuff really cloud different collaborations so we've got i don't know when we started casting a wider net we kind of started like identifying more as a collective than like solely as a label and the way cold love is it's not really just like a three person unit or operation it's kind of like a much broader communal thing than that or at least that's how we feel about it it's more it's bigger than just like me christian and lauren so i think that was kind of like definitely in the recent years it's felt like it's kind of turned into something i guess like bigger than definitely what it used to be when I was like 19 years old. You mentioned that, that you've, you've branched out, you've gone into these other, um, you've kind of almost like business-like ideas, mm. but you mentioned that you started working with these bands that you were kind of, you know, fanatical about. And mm. at some point, you know, it turned from a passion into a business or like it mixed those two a little bit. How do you, how do you see the balance between that first part of cult love where it was oh my god we're starting to work with these really cool bands mm. and now when you, when you're you're reaching out into these other business ventures it's a uh, it's funny it's hard sometimes especially for me to like really like because it's like it's something we want to do for a living i think sometimes we've been like so communally and like diy invested that it's kind of hard for us to conceive sometimes like i guess like not being more cutthroat, but just, I guess, being, like, a little less uh, philanthropic, maybe, in some ways <laughs> is the word. Because <laughs> we're just, like, I don't know, because at the end of the day, so much of it has just been, like, just trying to push Tulsa forward. Um, that Sometimes it's really hard to think of, like, cult love as a business. And that's kind of lately been our main issue because some of we have, um, I guess, older heads in our lives that are actually doing stuff like this legitimately. Like, my mother, um, Tulsa Artist Fellows, we're friends with and collaborate with. And we have this group of people telling us you should stay an art collective and look for your future in that. While other people like my mother are like, no, you, you should become a nonprofit and uh, you know get, get your taxes right and all that and pr- approach it that way. So we've kind of been on a cusp lately of trying to like, or like on the fence, I guess, about deciding like 
professionally wise, um, where do we need to be taking this and where do we need to be concentrating like the majority of our energy, especially casting such a wide net. It's hard to tell sometimes, which is like, what's going to actually have the best return for us. Cause sometimes it's like a really good cassette release. Like for example, we put out the blind equation, uh, born to die cassette, um, I think maybe a month ago now. And that was a pretty popular up and coming Nintendo core project probably one of the best in like the Nintendo core revival that's happening right now. And that cassette tape sold out in less than 12 minutes. And that was like that. So that was like crazy turnaround. I was like, well, that was a really quick return. But then other times tapes don't necessarily do that. And then sometimes we have merch runs that will flip over in like less than 24 hours. Um, and then occasionally we'll have some that we sit on for a while. And then sometimes we'll have events that we lose money on. Other times we'll have events where we somehow make a few hundred dollars in just a matter of a couple hours. So it's really kind of confusing sometimes where we're like, are I guess most of our passion and energy needs to be put. And I think that's still kind of like our biggest goal of this year is to start narrowing down what we need to do to turn this into something that's on, I guess, like the next level or a level up from like kind of where we're operating right now. Well, I think that's kind of, you know, any anybody who dreams of starting a record label, they think about all the bands they're going to work with, all the fun they're going to have, you know, all the all the cool art they're going to mm. push out there. But the But the business side of it doesn't ever really... Um, pop up in your mind, unless you're just trying to get rich or something like that. Yeah, <laughs> totally. I'll tell you what, DIY labels is not the way to do that. <laughs> That's a hard, hard path. Well, and I'm, I'm curious about kind of the, the DIY scene. Um, how how have, you, um, have you received pushback? You know, if you're trying to make a couple of bucks, if you're trying to stay afloat, maybe turn a profit and do this for a living, do you get support from the DIY community or is that kind of... Uh, you know, does that kind of look down on? God, it depends. Um, people are so fickle and it's not always necessarily like, I don't think anyone has ever hassled cult love for trying to be more business-like or turn it into something that's more of a business model and not just necessarily like a communal platform anymore or something that could actually put like um, me, Christian, and Lauren in a different spot financially or professionally than we're currently in right now and hopefully bring up the rest of the people around us in the community as a whole because that's still kind of the ultimate goal. Um, people are fickle. It's hard to tell sometimes. People choose the weirdest things to harp on or get upset over. Um, and you kind of just have to like keep rolling because I've, as I've grown older, I've kind of realized like people are always going to find a reason to be like bittered or jaded about something, whether it's because they're upset that you're changing your the way you're going about being a business or because they assume that you all are operating this way and you should be operating this way but i don't know everyone's got some opinion on something for the most part just kind of like we just try to approach things as purely as possible and hope that like the people who know us and have worked with us and see our intentions and see how we behave and know that we're, <laughs> we're just trying to do what's best for ourselves and everybody else around us so now there really hasn't been honestly I've seen a lot of posts that you've had recently about some upcoming projects, and one of the ones I'm most interested in is the uh, the house. Okay, so it's called Colt House version 2.0. Yeah, I'm trying to think of where to start with it, actually. So it's named that because the original Colt House was a, a DIY space and house venue that I lived in my sophomore year of college with my cousin Aaron, where we booked shows out of, which was actually a um, the upstairs 
unit of a duplex hilariously <laughs> there's some sketchy sketchy shows there but fortunately we, like some of our really close friends live below us so whenever the ceiling started bend- bending in towards them they weren't too freaked out <laughs> so that's why we named it cool house version 2.0 which i admit is not like a super crazy original name but it felt appropriate but that house was kind of like something that was like a bizarre alignment of stars and kind of a silver lining around when my grandmother died in december of 2018 and my family got a hold of that house and I ended up moving into that house. And I think some siblings of mine are also supposed to move in at some point, but COVID has kind of um, changed the way that's panning out. And I don't know, there's been a lot of people that have stayed there and a few people that have lived there, um, like Christian used to live there. But I don't know, it was around like winter or late fall of last year that I kind of was like, what if we just had like our friend Lucas paint a mural on the wall? And Lucas Weisner is really good with like real colorful, like real nice geometric murals. And um, we kind of wanted to start turning it into like a mural curation project with like local artists, specifically people that we worked and collaborated with a lot and were good friends of ours. And I also, um, I have a VHS camera. So it kind of, again, comes back to like archiving and filming things. So it kind of turned into like a weird, like filming and archive project. But then once we did Lucas, we were kind of like, well, why should we stop there? Like we have cans of white paint. If we ever had to go over to any of this, we could. So we started, um, so we just kind of had like more and more of our friends come in there and start painting it. And now it's like, I guess, heck, it's uh, about to be the beginning of October. And uh, we've painted almost the entirety of the inside of the house. And it's now being, it got picked up by Tulsa Noise, Nathan Young. And it's going to be debuted in his journal, the Tulsa Noise Journals, alongside a bunch of other artists who have um, compositions and other projects that they've contributed to this kind of like compilation journal that Nathan Young's putting together. So that's where uh, it got documented and it'll be debuting in that sometime in the fall or winter, I imagine. And so going forward, kind of assuming at some point we'll be able to actually go out and do things again, mm-hmm. like what's what's the plan with that? Are you going to do shows there? Is it going to be an art space? Like what what do you have in mind for it? I really wanted to do like... Um, I guess like a small opening for it at some point before like uh, before the pandemic I kind of imagined like sort of like almost like an invite only thing but not really an invite only thing because of course we're not going to be like oh you can't come in like we're not that kind of people but just kind of a smaller like opening event where people could come hang and like have some drinks in the house with us and like check it all out and um because there's also beyond the murals there's just like a lot of local art hanging up in there that we've like collected over time from our friends and affiliates and collaborators but i also foresaw kind of like doing like maybe like a small show in the basement with maybe like a hip hop act or like a noise act like back to back so kind of like a real like soft opening with like small group of people maybe 40 50 people and then like a little bit of entertainment in the basement in, in a perfect world where we didn't have covid i guess that's kind of what we wanted so i just imagine you and george like standing by the standing by the front door with like your arms crossed like no you can't come in you're not on the list you know? <laughs> we're too much of weenies we'd just be like oh, yeah whatever you're in <laughs> you're in just don't drink my beer but yeah that would have been in a perfect world i mean maybe we'll still get to do that at some point i don't know i'm not really sure what the future of that house is like beyond like my brief time living there <laughs> with the house and with release you've had some releases lately uh you've had a merch drop semi recently mm-hmm. yeah yeah so Back you guys obviously haven't slowed down all that much at all during the pandemic. How have you adapted to the current state of things? Like, like, where do you see 
the DIY scene right now and where do you see it going forward, you know, assuming that we're, we're still in lockdown for a, at least a few more months? Yeah, I anticipate probably it won't be until around this time next year that things actually start changing or getting better. And I think that's maybe optimistic even. We really had like back in March, it was really like actually the first couple of months were really depressing for us because we had a bunch of events and plans basically planned out till July, just really pulled out from underneath us. And a lot of them, I mean, heck, actually, there was an event that was supposed to be this upcoming weekend that's not happening anymore, but it's now Tulsa Drone Fest instead of what was supposed to be the next, the third Tulsa Noise Fest. Um, so we were kind of like pretty disheartened when that happened because we felt like we had lined up a lot of events and collaborations that were going to really be like big level ups for us in the community and big opportunities for a lot of different people. So that was kind of disheartening, but we found like, so we had like kind of a slow period there. And then around June, it was, we were kind of like, okay, it's like, we need to get moving because obviously nothing's going to change for a while and we can't just keep sitting here because other people are still doing stuff and moving it forward. So we've kind of pivoted more since events obviously are out of the question to um, more of like an online approach to things, which um, lately I've been really into like a lot of like hyper pop and like digicore music that my friend Rainbow showed me and kind of put me onto. And it's interesting because it's this community of like really young Gen Z people that are really, really up and coming and popular in their own niche genres. But they found these communities in their own avenue to success completely the opposite of how Cole Love approached things, which was completely digitally, completely online, screw a local physical community. Like I'm only doing this through the internet. So that's kind of been inspiring me lately with like Colt Love's pivoting and what we need to do since we can't really do like tangible on the ground, like in-person events anymore. I'd like to keep pushing for more of an online presence, but we're definitely looking at more, um, more collaborations, more streetwear, more work within art and curation and uh, focusing a lot on like releases and just our own personal creative projects. I think for my broader friend group, it's probably the most creative independently. We've all been in a long time, myself included. Um, since I don't have like as much like event stuff to occupy myself with via cult love. But I think for right now, the future of DIY is looking like uh, much more internet based. And I like live streams. I could see live streams staying popular and maintaining like a sort of popularity throughout all of this. But I think definitely people are just gonna have to focus on putting out some like quality, interesting releases more than anything else. Where do you want to take the Tulsa music scene next? So, I mean, you, I know you mentioned it's, it's going online, but you still have those those roots here in Tulsa. And, yeah. and I feel like I feel like you all will always keep Tulsa in mind when you're when you're running Cult Love and you're and you're doing things around town and, and even online. So what would you do to the Tulsa music scene next? Where would you push it forward? I want to see Tulsa uh, unite more as a broader community, I guess, and cross collaborate a lot more often. There is like a huge creative community in Tulsa, it seems like, or at least from my, in my two cents, in it. But it does seem like it's very, very niched up, and kind of like what we were talking about before we even got on the radio. It's like I feel like I have an idea of what's going on in Tulsa and like the broader creative community. Because in a lot of ways, it's like kind of my job to like pay meticulous attention to what's going on locally. Um, but then I hear about stuff like. Like we're talking about like Matt's new band. And I was like, I didn't know Matt had a new band and stuff like that. And other like areas, there's like other areas that I'm not nearly as familiar with. So I'd like to see people cross collaborate more and do more events across the spectrum a lot more often and just kind of hop around more shows and maybe not quite box themselves into one area or social group or whatever. But um, I think if Tulsa does that, we could move ourselves on the national scene to a way, way more highlighted and spotlighted like level, I think. And I think like a lot of like 
the attention that's still on the coast right now is starting to move inward because I think the coasts are kind of starting to burn themselves out and become a little cliche in some ways. And um, the center of the U.S., in my opinion, is where some of the most interesting um, creative stuff is happening. And I think it's because it's like the like it's a product of its environment and living in this part of America, which I kind of consider to be like this is the real America or whatever. It's not necessarily the coastal America. It's like the middle of the U.S., the Midwest, it's the Mid-South. This is truly the true average U.S. Um, so I think a lot of really interesting stuff happens here. And I think it's just like if Tulsa is able to come together as a broader community more, then it's going to be more likely that people start paying attention to it like they do somewhere like Austin, for example, though I hate making that comparison because it's so cliche. So I think I see Tulsa, or I'd like to see Tulsa, become its own version of Austin in some right and not not be another Austin but have that same sort of reputation for like art and music and quirkiness I guess it's own right too <laughs> but yeah I, I'm optimistic about it you want to bring different groups together so it's not all kind of split up and and you see that when you book shows because you get like you get a harsh noise act, you'll get a punk act, you'll get, um, you know, dream pop act, you know, right. you get all of these different genres together. Have you, have you felt like that has been a successful uh, way to book a show? Like, do you, do you see people coming out to those shows and having a good time throughout the entire set? I'm a big, big fan of mixed bill shows. I like, hundred percent behind that all the time. I'm not necessarily saying that everything has to be like hip hop act, noise grind act, and then your local indie act and your folk punk act. But I'm a huge fan of that personally. Like that's the kind of stuff I like to see. And I think that when like you tap into those like mixed bills like that, you get these people's different social circles all showing up because they're like, even if it is just they're there technically to see one act, they'll stick around hopefully most of the time and be exposed to these other genres. And you end up getting more people there rather than trying to just like pool the same handful of people from the same community over and over and over again. So I'm, I'm a big fan of that, totally. And I think I think it does have its rewards. When you do book those shows, do you see people sticking around like all, all throughout every set? I think most of the time. It depends on the context too. It's like Tulsa's funny and it depends on where you're booking things I've found because like there's atmospheres where like in event spaces where people definitely feel a lot more inclined to just hang out because it's a lot more casual and usually it's in the BYOB spaces of course because people just kind of come and hang out and party and that's kind of like really like something I learned in college was the trick to booking shows is like you kind of like especially if you want young people to be at it you kind of almost have to like promote it with like this like party edge to it like oh it's like oh it's not just music we're also going to be getting crunk and like <laughs> drinking beers and whatever but um but yeah, it, it depends. It depends totally. But I think so. I, I think for the most part, people stick around. But I also understand that like, I can't expect everyone to necessarily have like the same like brutally rigid ethos about it that I do. It's kind of unfair <laughs> just because I'm like a hardcore dork about it doesn't mean everyone else has to be. I think one of the the themes that we've had all throughout this interview, and this is kind of how we're gonna how we're gonna leave it for everybody. So mm. we've gotta make it important, right? So, right um, so one of the themes that we've we've had all throughout this is kind of an openness to different types of music and and different communities and different uh, sounds and and experiencing things that aren't just singular. 
Mm. How do you suggest to our listeners that they get out of their comfort zone a little bit and maybe not just go to a rock and roll show or maybe not just go to a hip hop show? Like how, how can they expand their experiences a little bit? I think in some ways, like for like the average person, it helps to think of like shows beyond like attending it purely for the music, though that's of course a valid reason to go to any concert, but almost start to think of it as like a social thing and think of it more on like a communal like level and just like meeting people and networking and broadening like the horizons for your own circle and the people around you and experiencing new things. Um, I don't know, that was something I guess I learned kind of when I was younger and just started going to shows on my own. And uh, you just kind of like, I don't know, you show up for other reasons beyond just like, I like this band and you want to meet people and like learn about new things. But I think like, yeah, I don't know. I think just like putting yourself outside of your comfort zone is really, I guess, what it comes down to to some degree and just trying out new things and like, I don't know, but I'm also the kind of person that would rather go to a show than like a bar or something like that. So I'm not necessarily expected everyone. I don't know, that was kind of like a long rambling answer to that that didn't really make much sense, but I don't know. I think like, I don't know, just, I guess give things and like give new things a try, honestly, is what it comes down to. And you'd be surprised like, especially with stuff like noise, it's like, you know, that's something that like a lot of people would like, their knee jerk reaction would be like, no, like I don't want to go to that and I don't want to do that. But then you have people show up and it's like, maybe you don't like it sonically, but by God, it's entertaining and it's fun. We're just all kind of drinking beer and watching people do crazy stuff on a table or whatever at the very least. So the very least it's entertaining. I think people would find like, trying out new things like that. They'd meet a lot of different really cool people and also be exposed to things that maybe aren't exactly their cup of tea, but are entertaining and like fun to indulge in in their own right. And like, I remember like at some of the Tulsa Noise Fest, you'd have like a lot of like, kind of like more like, I guess yuppie-ish like bar folk come down and wander down and just like come and hang out and watch because out of like pure curiosity because they're walking up and down a main street there and they just hear like all these crazy sounds and it's free and you can just walk in so they'll come in and be like whoa man and they just like stand around with you and see you at a bunch of like totally different people than you would expect to see at a noise show so so like you know you get that moment where where somebody who's never been to a noise show before even if they don't like the music they can walk in and go whoa is that a microphone strapped to a ratchet or something like that totally and, and if it's not even weirder than that yeah yeah that was like that's <laughs> that, was the, like, that was a clean version <laughs> <laughs> so you kind of just have to force yourself to, to get out there and, and do something new. And, and, you know, if it's not comfortable for you, just deal with it. Yeah, that, I, that kind of I think so too. I think it's like also just like, I don't know. I think a lot of it has to do like with thinking about things beyond just like, inter like entertainment for an evening or like, inter like humoring your friends and stuff like that. I think it's kind of like approaching things at like a broader communal level and thinking about things beyond like, yeah, like I said, like a night, an evening entertainment or just like humoring your friend and going to the rock show at the shrine or whatever. It's like kind of thinking about like Tulsa as a whole, I think will drive you to do more stuff like that. And I think if you like, and if you start doing stuff like that, I think you'll find yourself more and more curious about things that are going on in Tulsa that you might not totally be aware about. Well, I think Tulsa is the perfect place for what you're doing. And um, I, you know, from from me and from I know a lot of other people. Thank you for for all the time and the effort and all that stuff that you put into the Tulsa music community. It's pretty, it's pretty pretty cool to see. Oh, I'm flattered immensely too. That means a lot. We I, we feel the same way about Tulsa. We're grateful to do it. And we're grateful. It's a as we always say, it's a communal effort. Truly, it's not just us. So let's cap it off. What does Cult Love have coming up in the near future? 
as far as like upcoming cult love things, be on the lookout for the Benzo and Black Gambit collab full length that's coming out October 9th. We're doing cassettes for that. And that is local hip hop and local producer tape they did together. And honestly, if anybody knows them, they know this is long overdue. They've been friends forever and they're all, they're both extremely talented and it, this, finally this is happening i'm extremely excited to have something to do with that release and then we're also doing the gay k discography um which is edgar and thaddeus's like kind of like um like minimalist synth punk project i guess with kind of like some very like very like political themes and it's like it's a I don't know, badass badass music and i think we're gonna do a release for kira bruce when her project's done which is kind of like garage punky stuff and then uh, Solbach, a.k.a. Lars Gardner, is putting out a hyper-pop album that is still being finished up that we'll also be releasing. And I think that's our releases that are going to happen probably in the next six weeks. And we also have a collaboration with the local kombucha company, Colt Kombucha, that's going to be dropping the day before Halloween, October 30th, at Heirloom Rustic Ales. We'll have a food truck. And um, we're not gonna, I'm not going to give you details about the flavors and stuff, but that's going to be extremely tasty. And then, of course, the uh, keep your eyes out for the Colt house version 2.0 mural curation series that'll be dropping uh, the tulsa noise journal shouts out my friends shouts out my family shouts out the homies all over the country and internationally y'all know who you are and thank you tip and rsu and claremore and those students who told me where the radio station was Thanks again to Natty Gray for hanging out with us today on Press Play OK. You can check out Cult Love Sound Tapes on Bandcamp at cultlovesoundtapes.bandcamp.com. All the music you've heard on this episode has been released through Cult Love, so if you liked what you heard, you can probably find it on there. Thanks again to Musicians Haven for making this podcast possible. Find us on Spotify, Apple, Google, and rseradio.com. We'll see you next time right here on Press Play OK. 